have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. My name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs at Dirk Towers, here in Bolton, UK. I'm surrounded by my stuff. If I spin my chair to the left, there's a ridiculous homemade shrine to the actress Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. For today's podcast, she's in the gibbous phase of Stella Star, the best astral pilot in the universe from the film Star Crash. If I wheel backwards in my chair, I will drown in coats and long-forgotten cardigans that are hanging behind me. To the right is the great library of tabletop RPG and my grognard files. I'll just reach over and get to today's file. Ah yes, it's got all the usual sections, open box, Judge Blythe rules, White Dwarf with contributions from at Daily Dwarf from the Twitterverse, as well as some extra bits coming in the micro grog pod uh, about supplements and how to get hold of them. And uh, hang on, just a moment, there's a, there's a message in here. This is Free Trader Beowulf calling anyone. Mayday, Mayday, we're under attack. Main driver's gone. Turret number one not responding. Mayday, losing cabin pressure fast. Calling anyone. Please help. This is Free Trader Beowulf. Mayday. Ah, yes. White type on a black background can only mean one thing. It's Traveller. Science fiction role-playing in the far future. This podcast will be co-presented by Blythe because back in the day he was our games master or referee for Traveller. In the very early days of the Armchair Adventurers Club, this game was played on rotation with RuneQuest. Traveller wasn't the first science fiction role-playing game. Starfaring from Flying Buffalo and Metamorphosis Alpha from TSR both came out in 1976, a year earlier, and Space Patrol from Game Science also came out a few months before Traveller in 1977. However, Traveller was the most popular and most widely played science fiction role-playing game thanks to its elegant appearance, minimalist little black books at pocket money prices, and the good fortune of being released around the same time that Star Wars grabbed the global imagination. Traveller had its origins in Simulation Research and Design, or SIMRAD, a research group from Illinois State University that had spun out of the University Games Club. Mark Miller returned to university after a spell in the army. He joined Frank Chadwick, Rich Banner, in playing some of Avalon Hill and SPI classic tabletop war games, 
before getting hold of huge hex sheets and designing their own games. They managed to secure funding from the university to support their research, Simrad, where they were responsible for producing eight different game design over an 18-month period. Some of these were designed for the classroom to help simulate real-life strategic situations for students to play through. Miller had been involved in classroom-based role-playing of sorts back in 1968, where he participated in hypothetical political nominating convention, with students taking the role of candidates and political aides to work through the processes. He was interested in mixing role-play into conventional war game situations in educational institutions to improve strategic and tactical thinking. When the funding for Simrad was removed, Miller, Chadwick and Banner formed a commercial business to continue their work. Game Designers Workshop, GDW, was created in 1973. Their first commercial products were ambitious series of games set on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. GDW moved into the role-playing arena in 1975 with its game On Guard, set in the swashbuckling world of 17th century Paris. I played it back in the day. At the time, I had a regular diet of fantasy RPGs, but On Guard works a little bit differently. It's a hybrid of tactical wargaming with role-playing. You take a role of a gentleman duelist engaged within the etiquette of war and conflict. I got into my role perfectly. I shall wear my hat at a jaunty angle and talk to the gentleman. I shall invite him to breakfast, and at breakfast we will exchange tales and make plans to leave this town. Uh, it doesn't quite work like that, my games master interjected. Situations were resolved on various charts and tables, and as a character you needed to go through certain seasonal events. Social climbing rituals were highly regulated skirmishes to make, uh, make the mechanic work. It was a war game, a war game without a board. In the same year, GDW brought out Triplanetary, a vector-based starship combat game. On the back of it, came Imperium, a war game where humans battled against alien races. The Aslan, a lion-like race, the Varga, a dog-like race, and Hivers, a bee-like race. Mercenary bands were known as the Darsai. The mechanic for Imperium also featured role-playing elements. The offspring of the various interplanetary leaders would have military background that would be established through rolling on various charts to create their characters. Elements of these games were incorporated into Traveller RPG, which was written by Mark Miller with help from Chadwick, Banner and Lauren Wiseman. It featured a number of innovations that made it distinct from other RPGs released at the same time. Some were willful contrarian adaptions, such as rolling a 2d6 rather than 3d6 for basic attributes. Others were groundbreaking, such as the character creation, where players select a class, work through a profession, 
face dangers and gather skills in the process, and by rolling on charts and tables. Unlike other games, character progression stops at the point of creation. It's not possible to get better by experience or training, so levelling a character or seeking perfectibility is only possible through the acquisition of stuff. The initial game didn't come with any predetermined setting or background material. Indeed, part of the attraction of the game, from Miller's point of view, was that games masters could sit at home rolling on various tables and create galaxies, planets and citizens for the entire universe. Before long, GDW realised that Games Master had little time or inclination to spend time preparing for a session, so they released a series of little black books expanding the rules and providing the setting of the Spinwood Marches, a backdrop to the stars. The setting was developed through the Little Black Books and the GDW in-house magazine, the Journal of the Traveller's Aid Society. There were supporting spacecraft war games too, because they conceived it as a role-playing game that could telescope in and out of personal situations to large-scale battles. In the early part of the 80s, GDW worked hard on developing the Spinwood Marches setting. In the MicroGrogPod second part of this episode, we'll look behind the Games Master screen and look in depth at some of those supplements and run through a price check. You'd be surprised at how much it'll cost you to uh, chase those little black books on eBay. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Section 1. Open box. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And you're here because... Traveller was your game. So you're here for this open box segment um, because you were, the, you were the referee. You were the go-to games master for Traveller back there. And I think we should perhaps um, just talk about how our birthdays work because we are both born in 1968. I was born in March. Kylie Minogue was born and then you were born. And then I was born in May, yes. Yeah, in May. So yeah. uh, our birthdays followed... Uh, followed and so I got uh, if you go 13 years on and I got RuneQuest for my birthday. You got RuneQuest? We're I, not sure if Kylie got a role playing game for her birthday. I'm not sure she did but, but if anybody knows they can let us know and then it came to your birthday and, and by that time we'd got our heads around uh, RuneQuest um, and it came to you buying a game why didn't you get RuneQuest? You like RuneQuest? You know very well why I didn't get uh, RuneQuest because you wouldn't let me <laughs> you, you wouldn't let me get RuneQuest. Um, <laughs> that's, that's strictly not true, is it? I thought we came well, to a mutual not, agreement. So. I, I think there's, it's in, an interesting question, isn't it? Um, and I think it, there were some very good reasons for buying Traveller, uh, but there are also some reasons that were sort of uh, role-playing culture reasons or cultural reasons at the time, which aren't quite as relevant now. Um, I think that one reason was... Um, we like science fiction. So we did like science fiction. In some ways, we like science fiction more than fantasy. You know, we read yeah. more science fiction. We we watch more science fiction films. We were the Star Wars generation. Uh, so you know, there was a sense in which it seemed really sensible to buy a science fiction role playing game because we had a swords and sorcery game. So why not get a science fiction game? 
and Traveller at the time was the leading science fiction game. I mean, that was the yeah. prominent one. It was the one produced or unlicensed by Games Workshop. So it was in the shop. It was there. It was advertised. There were others, I think, but um, that was the prominent one. So it seemed like a sensible move. You know, I'm, I'm a big, as you know, a big Blake 7 fan, uh, the greatest TV show ever made, uh, without doubt. Um, we both like, you know, I like Doctor Who, we like Star Wars, a bit of Star Trek. It seemed a sensible thing to do, different, a different flavour to role-playing. So yeah. there was that element to it. Um, but the, the, the other element was um, the, the thing that I think we've, we now call the Prime Directive. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the Grognard Prime Directive, which at the time was that the rule, I think it ran something like, thou shalt not games master a game that another person games masters. That's right, yeah. And I think we lived by that Prime Directive for a few years, didn't we? The, we uh, did, the uh, we years. did, and it did cause some problems. And, it, and it's kind of part of the explanation why uh, we didn't play a lot of D&D or Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. That's a story for another day, but I think the <laughs> Prime Directive is yeah. a, a key reason for some of the choices that we made, wasn't it? It's yes, a, a, yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think I, I think the prime directive doesn't it doesn't sound as it isn't as daft as it sounds because I think at the time in the sort of late seventies early eighties when we were getting into role playing games the way role playing games pitched themselves um, I think was very much there was someone who was a games master who held all the secrets of the game so yeah. all the secrets about the monsters all the secrets about the world all the secrets about everything and then there were the players that were playing in that world who didn't necessarily know, you know, for example, in uh, in RuneQuest, didn't know how the Thanatar cult operated or how a scorpion man uh, did this or that or whatever. Yeah. Um, so th there was that sense in which it felt like you couldn't games master That's the wrong. same games because you would be privy to the secrets. Now, that's that's changed now. You know, role playing is far more sophisticated, yeah. and we all we all games master Cthulhu, and we all play it properly in the sense that we we play it as players, in the sense that we wouldn't we players I, wouldn't know I things. Didn't, I didn't uh, I didn't uh, when you playing in RuneQuest or being a games master in RuneQuest because I'm frightened that you may break Galantha in some way. Yes. So if uh, yes. you know in one game um, where we were players. You know, a lunar general was killed, and yet he appeared in the uh, yes. yeah. game. It's we hadn't a, quite discovered the parallel universe theory at that point. <laughs> no. I don't think it was common currency. Yeah. So um, there was there was that as well. But those two ta those two things kind of sat there in the back of our minds when we were thirteen, uh, and they're not. They said they're not as daft in retrospect. They're not as daft as they seem because no. there was there was very much that sense of you know, games master was one role for a game. And player was another role, yeah. and you couldn't. You could. You were either one or the other, and that was it. And uh, those little black books even had for referees only. Yes, plastered yes. over the front. Of it. That's true. So yeah, and, and there wasn't just just traveller that did that. Lots of games did that thing of yeah for for games masters eyes only. Yeah. So there was always that sense that well, if you were a player in this game, you know, if you if you were a player in traveller, you couldn't be privy to the supplements and the library data and. All the other bits and pieces, because because you were just a player, and as yeah. games master, you were god, and you knew everything. And and another factor, so we're trying to justify having a ridiculous rule here. We but, are. I think we did a fairly good job of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> another factor was white dwarf, because everything comes back to white dwarf, doesn't it? Yes. Because it does. uh, we've all got white dwarf, and to get the benefit out of it, uh, 
um, mm. we had this thing, well, I will read the uh, travel stuff <laughs> if you don't read the RuneQuest yes. stuff. And yes. That's how we'd uh, yes. sort it out between yeah. us. So that was that, those were the reasons. It was partly, it seemed sensible because we like science fiction and it was a bit of a, it was a different kind of game, so it seemed logical. But there was that problem of, you know, you couldn't you couldn't games master the same game. So you were forever for a long for many, many years you were the RuneQuest games master and for many years I was a traveller games master and we were never players in those games for a long, long time really. That's right. Just going back to Traveller and uh those uh first few days. So so where did you get it from? What was the experience of buying it? Well, I, I think I bought it from Games Workshop in London. I think we wow. went on a, a day trip to London and uh, we were uh, we were excited about going to Games Workshop in London. There's one in Manchester, but we somehow thought the one in London would be would be bigger and better. Yeah. And it, it wasn't really, was no, it? It we, was we very thought, similar. We thought it was going to be something like Xanadu or something. Yeah, we yeah, Aladdin's Cave yeah. of role-playing games. But it was... Which it sort of was, but it, but it wasn't much different from the one in Manchester. Yeah. And it makes you realise how spoiled we were, actually, living in Manchester, that there was a games yeah. workshop on, on the doorstep. I seem to remember that we were more impressed by the uh, cornucopia of stuff that was in Forbidden Planet rather than... Uh, yes, Forbidden Planet was, was a little bit more impressive because it was a, another shop that sold role-playing games, whereas in Manchester you didn't really have that. You just had Games Workshop. But I got it from Games Workshop, and, uh, you know, it, it is an exciting thing to buy it was the first role-playing game i'd bought and i bought the deluxe edition well the deluxe edition i mean you know if you're going to do it do it properly <laughs> um which is a big big black box with on the front it has the uh distress call words from the free free trader beowulf yeah um and there's a, there was a certain excitement in that i mean it was a kind of classy it was quite a classy box because a lot of role-playing games had crap illustrations on the front so you did have that problem. You always had that problem with role-playing, of rubbish yeah. illustrations. So if you look at the first, I think this is one of the early editions of Monster Manual, uh, terrible illustration. Dungeon Master's Guide, terrible illustration. Um, Player's Handbook, quite a good one. But but Traveller looked quite classy because it was black. And it just had this mysterious message on it. And you thought, oh, this is, this is kind of, I so, like this. this is so, so, take us, so take us back, you know, it has to be said that you lived in a very, very small bedroom. I mean, how we managed to pile five or six was in there. I think it was like yeah. six by eight, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think With it a wardrobe was, in yeah. the bed and uh, an MFI desk yes. uh, and uh, a record player. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm trying to picture the scene of you sat there at your MFI desk. <laughs> um, you've got a, a can of uh, uh, lager and lime top deck. You're about to put... Um, a record on the turntable, probably Toto. Possibly, yes, yes. That, that was it. My musical tastes at the time were 70s soft rock, alienating me even further from my peers. <laughs> if, if, if role-playing games weren't enough, <laughs> my musical taste did it as well. So American <laughs> Heartbeat was about to uh, yes. start, start going there. Yes. And so just explain the experience of opening that box and uh, looking at the rules. Well, I think opening opening Traveller was was a strange experience because it was there was a slight sense of disappointment about it because the box is a big box um, with as you say the the kind of mysterious distress call on the front and you thought and it was the deluxe edition as well you know the deluxe, the deluxe the, edition oh yeah the deluxe edition um, but it was slightly disappointing because in inside the box you had um, you had think five booklets you had three core rule booklets so you had book one which was characters and combat 
book two, which was Starships, book three, which was Worlds and Adventures. And then you had an introduction to role-playing and an introductory um, adventure called, I think, The uh, Fringes of the Imperium, uh, and two, 2D6. Um, so there's a slight disappointment because the, these um, these booklets are quite small. There weren't many illustrations in them, if, if any, to be honest. And there, were, there were very few illustrations. So it wasn't the kind of big lavish rule book like D&D or like RuneQuest, you know, they, they had a kind of nice big, it was it was quite quite small. Um, but the most exciting thing about it was the map, the star chart, the full colour oh, star chart, that. full colour star chart of the Spinwood Marches. And, and in a way, the books were a bit disappointing on first glance. The map kind of won me over. Yeah. The map looked, just looked fantastic. It's so It was so exciting. It was like being given... Um, a universe in a box. Yeah. But Blythe, what, what do these red circles mean? And, uh, you know, <laughs> what do these numbers mean? Yeah, it was names? it was good. So the um, the map, the, the odd thing about it was that the map, the star chart, was the thing that yeah. initially grabbed you and you made you think, oh yeah, I, I, like, well, I, I like the look of this because look, all these planets, all these star, these star systems. Yeah. You know, there's something to it, and it still looks fabulous. I mean. On the website, thetravelermap.com, I think it is. Yeah. They've made yeah, an interactive map. They it do look, look good. It looks really good. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they did a really good job with, even the, despite the, the lack of illustrations in the booklets, um, they compensated with the star chart. I think as well, the 2D6, two, two, two six-sided dice, it's slightly disappointing. I think, I think we need to get a message here out to all games designers, uh, and that message is we quite like funny-sided dice. We like the funny-shaped dice. Don't, it's not a selling point to say you only need normal six-sided die. Not for us. A selling point is that you need a multitude of weird dice. You even need a D12, which is the dice never really used for anything. But it's there, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very little use for a D12. It's like Thunderbird 3. Quite good, but it's never used. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that was the slight disappointment, which, which lasted throughout our time playing Traveller, that... I really wanted funny, the, the weird dice. I wanted D20s and D10s like in RuneQuest and D4s, but all I had was the D6. So there's a slight disappointment there, I think. You know, the realise that. I, I kind of knew that. I knew that it was six-sided dice, but when you actually saw it in the box, looking a bit lonely, these two normal dice, like, like you bought snakes and ladders or something like that. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I also remember that there was a permanent uh, memorial to that moment uh, in your bedroom, right? there was a few days later. Um, I mean, I, I, I talk about the, the first thing I looked at was characters in combat, so I ignored the introduction to role playing. I may have looked at that later, but at this point, we, we knew what role playing was, so it, it seemed a bit silly to sit there reading that diligently reading the introduction. Uh, so I went straight into characters in combat, and uh, I felt quite pleased with myself because I understood characters in combat. It, it's an unusual system because. Um, you you kind of could play old characters, so you could play characters who'd been in the, the armed services, the navy, or the army for a number of years, and you had to make survival roles. Uh, one of the most famous famous mechanics, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later, of Traveller was the survival role for the terms that you spent in the army. Yeah. Um, so characters, and I read combat, and I understood it, and I thought this is this is great, you know. And then I got starships. And, and Starships is an interesting rule book because 
the, the bit about Starship Combat in that is essentially a tabletop yeah. game of tabletop Starship battles, which is fine, but we got our heads around role-playing games and then suddenly Traveller seemed to turn the tables on me, if you excuse the pun, <laughs> um, and presented me with this uh, strange game where you, ne- you needed a board, you needed a playing surface, it said, so I'd got around my head around the idea you didn't need a playing surface for a role-playing yeah. game. Now they said I did need a playing surface. I think it talked about the scale, you know, 1,000 1, kilometres to a millimetre uh, and vectors, the ships moving in vectors. And I thought, this is this is like a logbook from maths at school. What's this? And I think at that point I threw the Starship yeah. rulebook across the room and it made a black mark on the wall, uh, which my mum would inquire later. So why is there a black mark on your wall? Yeah, I just I don't know. Oh, I don't know where that's coming from. It was there for a while. I think while the dog did it. We didn't have a dog at the time. <laughs> the dog did it. It was there for a while dog. as well, wasn't it? It was. It, well, it, a, was. It, was a, it was a lasting reminder. Yeah, of, uh, you know, yeah. Those frustrations. But I think I think that was quite a telling thing, really, about travel. In that it was of all the role playing games that we played and encountered, it was the most tied up with tabletop wargaming. Uh, you know, and I think when you talk about the history of it. Uh, that's where it came from. Yeah. It came from tabletop uh, war games, and and there were other supplements for traveller that that kind of latched onto that idea, skirmish rules and. Yeah, I think I think uh, Mark Miller conceived it on three levels. So mm. on a personal role playing level, as a skirmish game um, yeah. on the tabletop with uh, people battling, and also a, a space combat. So depending on the situation, you would kind of move between the three. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just that we weren't that interested in. Uh, well, we were interested, and I think it was the, in an odd way. Um, it was the first. It was the first time we'd encountered as thirteen-year-olds um, tabletop wargaming. So tabletop wargaming with spaceships was there, waiting for to pounce in the traveller rules, and it was a little bit of a, not, perhaps not bewildering, but it was a bit very technical. It's quite technical, quite specific. Talking about scale, movement speeds, getting a ruler out and measuring the distance between ships and this kind of thing, and you did feel like. Well, this isn't, you know, we'd been playing RuneQuest for a few months. This isn't like RuneQuest. This isn't really a role-playing game. This this bit of it, this bit, seems like a different kind of game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think as well, I, 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 just going back to those early days, I had an in, insatiable appetite to play. I really wanted to play. And it took a bit of time, didn't it, for you to get your head around uh, mm. the rules. What's your early memories of running the game? Well, I think it was a it was a it was a strange game to run because um, you you it's sort of a lot of the, I mean I said Blake Seven was my favourite TV show so I think the early games were all a bit like Blake Seven yes, we, we were never lucky enough to have seven players but <laughs> but it was a bit like that yeah. it was always that you were kind of renegades. On the on the edge of the law, uh, because you know what what's odd about it, I think, is that Traveller is very much very kind of militaristic. Uh, the character creation, the initial character creation, although there were supplements that modified this later, but the initial one is you join the army, you join the navy, you join the marines, you join the scouts, or you can join the merchant navy, and that was character creation. So all your all your characters came from a sort of quite formal background and yet our love of science fiction was characters who were very not like that so Han Solo 
you know, yeah, really I, mean, hands, I mean, admittedly, you know, yeah. you could join the Navy and then become a smuggler. Yeah, we, we get that. But our, our science fiction characters were the people we loved in science fiction. You know, Luke Skywalker was, was a farm boy in Tatooine, wasn't he? He didn't yeah. join the Navy. Yeah. He didn't join the Army. Han Solo was a smuggler. Blake Seven were a bunch of criminals. Doctor Who was a renegade time lord. So Traveller didn't quite sit well with that. I mean, I think a lot of the early games were trying to were trying to capture that sense of wanting to be Blake Seven, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker. I'm not sure it sat quite as well with Traveller. No. Um, and what was unusual as well uh, at that time was that you wrote a lot of the scenarios didn't you, to yes. fit your yes. vision of the game. Yes. So yes. It's not like we have records of it. So. No. I've got memories of, uh, you know, uh, trying to find a hologram uh, of a, a, the daughter of a gangster um, yeah, yes, to, try and, yeah. uh, to try and hide it so that because uh, there's this blackmail hanging over. I remember that, that, that scenario really well. Um, but because he didn't play many of the supplements, mm. we don't have any record, do we, to kind yeah, of uh, yeah. recall that? Well, I, I remember once listening to an interview with one of the script writers for Blake Seven. Um, can't remember his name, but he was one of the script writers, and he essentially said, "Look, it was easy to write Blake Seven because it was Robin Hood in space." Yeah. And I think early Traveller games were very much like that. They became yeah. like Robin Hood in space, you know, where characters were you were dealing with cr- the criminal underworld, so you were either slightly bent, you know, yeah. you were crooks to some extent, or you were dealing with crooks, or the crooks were after you, that kind of thing. Whereas I think later games of Traveller became slightly more sophisticated. So we played a long campaign several years later, which I know you enjoyed, where you were a merchant yeah. and you were engaged in genuine merchant activities yes. of trying to acquire money to buy better drives for the ship uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that felt actually perhaps sort of more fitting with Traveller, actually. Yeah. Yeah, early games of Traveller were like Blake Seven, but with much, much better effects. And oh yes, general better effect. acting as well. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> okay, so I think the other thing that we need to touch on because it, 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 it's going to come clear that you have a bit of a, a love hate relationship <laughs> with, yes. with Traveller, um, and it's it's like therapy. This I feel like you know, yes. the therapist. Yeah, you know, uh, facing up to your demons here. Because those early games as well were blighted by uh, bad players, badly behaved players, one player in particular. Uh, yes, and, yeah. And somehow travellers seemed to encourage bad behaviour. Well, going back, to, going back to that experience of first reading the rules, I have quite a vivid memory of one of the things I looked for in the rules. You know that, that thing where you read, I don't know if other people do this, but you start reading the rules from the beginning with a view to working your way through to the end. And what you do is you read through to the end, but what you keep doing is leaping forward and backwards and looking for things and certain questions, you know, when character creation, why would you do this? Well, I wonder, and you'll leap forward. And one of the things I remember doing quite a lot is looking for the rules about experience. Yeah, to, and progression. And character progression. And there really aren't any in travel. I think there are some obscure rules about doing a four-year training programme to improve a skill, but... But not like RuneQuest. You know, RuneQuest, you swung a broadsword and you hit something, and then the next game you do an experience roll and you increased your chances. Yeah. So there's that sense of character progression. Traveller just did, didn't have that. Um, so I think that was a problem because it, it created perhaps a sense of frustration in players because players wondered what 
that it was about. And I think I think the other problem with Traveller, which again at the time compared to RuneQuest, although the, the other games do this, there's nothing to really motivate travellers or or rein them in. So in RuneQuest, if you joined Stormbull, for example, the Stormbull cult, you have a very clear motivation. You go around killing chaos. You have to do this. You have to do that. If if you're a Stormbull initiate, Stormbull rune lord, and you find out that there's a you know chaotic creatures encamp near a village, you you are bound by your cult obligations and by your god to yes. go and sort it out. D and D has alignment. You know alignment. If you if you decide when you create a character that you're going to be a, a lawful good paladin, well the games master has a bit of can kind of rein you in and control you a bit because you can't behave like an idiot. You can't just run doing what you want because you're on alignment. Travelers didn't have that. There was nothing to really say to characters or players. You have to behave like this. And that, I think, brought about, partly through perhaps frustration, partly through the fact that they could just do it. In certain players, it brought around a, a sense of of anarchy almost that yeah. you know one one session if it's convenient you can shoot the prisoners uh, in another in another session if it's convenient you can go and rescue some prisoners so well hang on a minute what are you what's you yes you know yeah so i think i think that's very true so as a player um it was about acquiring stuff to become more powerful so the acquisition of yeah. Uh, yeah. more property yes um or this kind of uh, moral attitude of um, whatever mm. suits the mood at yeah. the time, um, so you have like a Hobbesian view of the world. Where it does, it does, yeah, yeah. Life's nasty, brutish, and short, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's what travellers like. Uh, but, but in in its defence, I suppose um, you've got to remember we were thirteen, fourteen at the time, and, and the people we played with were thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, I think in later years we played with more mature players, um, and we've recently rediscovered traveller with more mature players. And as more mature players, you tend to. Uh, you tend to act more consistently, yes. but I certainly think as as you know, as young people, as kids, um, it was very very easy to just run around, um, you shooting know, stuff, shooting stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robbing, robbing banks and and behaving in whatever way you wanted. Whereas in RuneQuest, you know, I mean, we had one player who's particularly difficult. Uh, in RuneQuest, he was an Orlanth initiate, and of course, he had to behave in a certain way because he was in Orlanth. You know, occult obligations, certain codes of behaviour that were expected of him uh, and if he didn't then the games master or the gods could punish him yeah. uh, in Traveller there was none of that so he could do whatever he wanted and did yes. um, and from a games master's perspective it was very very difficult very difficult to control players you know, without, without basically laying the law down and saying look you're behaving in a stupid way I'm not going to play and, and think at the time role players were such a scarce resource you know, you couldn't. You weren't. You didn't have the luxury of saying to somebody, "Look, I'm not going to play with you again," because <laughs> there was only like four of us. Yeah, yeah. Three at best. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to uh, come back later and get under the bonnet of the uh, rules, and mm-hmm. uh, so you yeah. feel who who knew that the rules would matter so much that you would throw them against the wall uh, in frustration. I mean, who'd have, who'd have thought? It was a sign of things to come, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a sign. It was the rules lawyer trying to get out. But before we do that, um, as you've said, we've kind of recently, over the last couple of months, revived uh, mm. Traveller, started playing again uh, using uh, the Mongoose uh, rules uh, that have uh, recently been published. How does that feel? Because I'm the games master. 
Well, yeah, I mean, as I say, as a player, actually, it's, I find it slightly more enjoyable. You know, it's more fun to play than it is to Games Master, I think. Um, because, again, you can kind of, you don't have to worry too much about how controlling other players and, and those kind of difficulties. I think yeah. it's, it's nicer to play. Because it's quite a simple, I mean, again, we'll talk about rules later, but from an from a actual playing perspective, it's actually quite a simple game. Yeah, I think one of the odd things about the travel rules, uh, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, is the fact that a lot of the rules and a lot of the dice rolling goes on outside of the actual playing of the game. So some of those frustrations at 13, learning the rules, were rules that wouldn't really come into play, you know. And um, you know that the Prime Directive is no longer in place. And I'm, <laughs> I, I'm the, I, think, I, th I think you described it as like one of those Woody Allen films where um, I'm now married to your ex-wife and know, yes. all, know all your secrets. Yeah, and we've met at a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I can't quite can't work out whether I'm jealous and attractive, still attracted to my ex-wife, or whether I'm glad she's gone and glad you've got her to deal with yeah that's the thing with Traveller I'm not quite sure maybe maybe I'd like to Games Master it again with a more mature perspective I don't know <laughs> okay well thank you for opening the box and uh, let's come back and look at these uh, rules okay section 2 the White Dwarf on Twitter at Daily Dwarf selects choice pieces from the heyday of White Dwarf magazine follow him and look at his timeline, and you'll discover selections from the wonderful art and delightfully eccentric writing from the UK's greatest RPG magazine. We invite him to choose one favourite example from the magazine to illustrate the game under discussion. When it came to Traveller, he asked if the rules could be relaxed, so he could choose more than one selection. Now the idea of a prime directive, which forbids my friends from buying the games they want, may give you the impression that I'm some sort of messianic, megalomaniac, control freak of a games master. But I have demonstrated my willingness to adapt the rules to suit a higher purpose, by allowing At Daily Dwarf to choose more than one example. As a games master, I'm happy to accommodate this flexibility, in the full and certain knowledge that I'll get in by later. I need to get into the role and uh, adopt my best uh, dwarf persona so <clears throat> in his own words Traveller role playing for grown ups the first issue of White Dwarf I ever bought was number 26 to say I was naive about role playing games is a massive understatement at that time all I'd ever played was a few games of basic D&D and so for me RPGs and D&D were synonymous. It never even occurred to me that there might be role-playing games for genres other than fantasy. So, that first read of White Dwarf number 26 was a real eye-opener. Lots of weird and wonderful new games to find out about. And there was a science fiction RPG. Of course there was. It was called Traveller. Excellent. A chance to play a space pirate, fire a laser gun and rescue a princess from an evil empire. Right? Right? Ah, but it turned out 
Traveller was a very different beast. If role-playing games were computer operating systems, Traveller would be Unix, terse, a bit impenetrable to the beginner, with a reputation for being complex and unfriendly. The ubiquitous D&D would of course be Windows, and RuneQuest, beloved of black polo neck-wearing iconoclast, would be Mac OS. I'm, I'm not sure where the analogy goes from there, so i better move on. Classic Traveller is not so much a role-playing game as a toolkit for creating your own science fiction RPG. The basic structure is there, but much is required for the referee to develop a successful, believable campaign. A lot of work is needed in terms of world-building and scene-setting. There are lots of gaps to be filled, and no real guidance in the rules. So, reading through the three little black books all those years ago was an exciting and yet at the same time daunting experience. The military background to character generation, the complex, so it seemed to me, starship rules, the relatively low-tech weaponry, all these contributed to my view of Traveller being a grown-up role-playing experience. Far away from the cheesy ray guns I'd initially anticipated. It was an enticing prospect, but I needed help in starting a game. Not content with the three little books, I'd bought another, albeit this time with attractive purple striping. Adventure 1, The Kin Un Ear. I'd read a few TSR A and D&D modules by this time. These always contained a detailed adventure, with a decent narrative background, and so I was expecting something similar from the Kinunir. What I got, though, was a few sketchy scenario outlines, with some ship deck plans to go with them. It felt like, having bought an adventure, I still needed to sit down and write the adventure. I felt more than a little cheated. In the referee's notes section, it states... Kinunir is an adventure for Traveller, and a challenge for the Traveller referee. You got that right, GDW. I ran the Kinunir for my group, but it was an unsatisfactory experience. There was little tension, threat, or any real sense of adventure in those early games. What was an aspiring Traveller referee to do? There was still a yawning gap in the game, a real lack of coherent background on which to hang the triumphs and the disasters, or the adventures of the player characters. Luckily, into the echoing void, like a Azanti High Lightning class frontier cruiser with all guns blazing, came White Dwarf magazine. Traveller was reviewed in issue 6. Clearly its importance was apparent, as a whole three pages were devoted to it. One of the longest reviews I remember in classic White Dwarf. Unfortunately, the review was given to Don Turnbull. Now, Mr Turnbull's contribution to the early RPG scene in the UK is considerable, but his reviewing style is most charitably described as dry. 
he starts with a treatise on the saturation of the games market, followed by the comment that of the RPGs that were then available, only D&D and On Guard were actually played. News to long-term Tunnels and Trolls players, no doubt. What follows is a decent enough summary of the Traveller rules, identifying one or two flaws, and to his credit, he does identify that referees have a lot of work ahead of them in developing a campaign. But he signs off with the following. I get the uneasy feeling that here is a prime example of something which will be welcomed avidly and bought, but never achieve active status. Its appeal is immediate, its attraction compelling, and its topicality apposite. But my guess is that it will occupy the shelves rather than in players' minds. Having said this, I can't honestly suggest you don't buy it. In so many respects, it's too good to miss. But be prepared for the transient nature of its appeal and usefulness. I'm sure Games Designers Workshop were very chuffed by that review. Yeah, thanks, Don. Uh, the check's in the post. Despite this rather damning with faint praise review, articles and scenarios for Traveller started to appear in White Dwarf soon after. Clearly some gamers were enthused with it. Traveller gained its own column, Starbase, in issue 20. This was edited by Bob McWilliams. Together with Andy Slack, he formed a formidable duo. They were the Lennon and McCartney of Traveller articles in White Dwarf providing readers with excellent background material to really bring their traveller campaigns to life. Dirk's original brief for my contributions to the Grog Pod was to cover a single article or scenario for White Dwarf for a chosen game. With Traveller, though, it was just too difficult. There's so much good stuff. So, with Dirk's indulgence, I'll take a look at one article, one scenario and one Starbase column. I'm aware that I'm probably going to annoy some people by not picking their favourite. The article. Backdrop of Stars. Bob McWilliams was the first to tackle the perceived lack of guidance for traveller referees. That first Starbase column contained some succinct ideas on setting up campaigns. However, it was Andy Slack's article backdrop of stars in White Dwarf 24 that really addressed the problem in some detail. This was a very influential article, both for me and others. The Honourable Judge Blythe has described it on Twitter as possibly my favourite White Dwarf article. Mr Slack had covered many Traveller Rules editions in the four-part epic Expanding Universe, but it was in Backdrop of Stars that he looked in depth at the issue of developing a coherent campaign background. And the great thing was, it felt like it was written just for me. As he says in the article, Andy Slack came to Traveller from D&D 2 and found that whilst developing a fantasy background was pretty straightforward, doing the same for science fiction campaign was a much greater challenge. That's exactly how I felt all those years ago. With interstellar travel possible, I needed to design a whole universe. Help!
Looking back now, it's easy to see why Backdrop of Stars was such a useful article in tackling this problem. Andy Slack offers a lot of simple, straightforward advice to new traveller referees. Start small. Map out just a few planets in detail. Get the players involved in some wider conflict to give them an initial purpose and direction. He then gives a few examples, such as Mission Impossible, where no man has gone before, hmm, rings a bell, and Star Wars, it doesn't so much ring a bell as send a blaring klaxon. My favourite is his suggestion of a Dirty Dozen style setup for a particularly bloodthirsty hack and slay players. I suspect that it might have led to some short-lived campaigns though, owing to the high likelihood of the PCs going down in a hail of bullets. There's also advice on dealing with players' complaints and problems, and a good description of how to apply logical thinking in order to generate believable, compelling commissions for players. I particularly like the description of a chain of patrons campaign model. This is the classic onion skin setup where solving one scenario leads to further mystery and so on. The players reach the ultimate treasure, battle, MacGuffin. Andy Slack states that several of the game's designers' workshop adventures follow this pattern. I can't comment. After being burned by the kin and ear, I didn't buy any more of their adventures. In amongst all the solid advice, there are some hints that Andy Slack must have run some pretty ambitious games. He talks of running multiple independent groups of players in the same campaign, and whether their paths should ever cross. This sounds intriguing in theory, but I suspect it would be a monumental headache for a referee in practice. Andy Slack further developed his ideas on scenario and campaign design in later articles, most notably his Introduction to Traveller series that started in White Dwarf 36. But it's Backdrop of Stars that stays in my memory as the launch pad for my exploits as a Traveller referee. The scenario, Amber to Red. Choosing a single Traveller scenario from the pages of White Dwarf to talk about is hard. There were 13 scenarios in total during its RPG heyday, and quite a few were very memorable. White Dwarf's most prolific scenario writer, Marcus L. Rowland, contributed a couple of gems. Tower Trouble and the high-concept Green Horizon, where the players take on the roles of space-faring marsupials tackling Nazis on Earth. And then there's An Alien Werewolf in London by J. Campbell. A scenario so high concept that it's possibly stratospheric. A time-travelling homicidal Varga loose in Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel. Impossible to fit an into an existing campaign, but a huge fun as a one-off game. However, I'm limited to one scenario, so I've picked Amber to Red by Neil Shane. The scenario from White Dwarf 26 that first alerted me to this game called Traveller. Partly, it's an unashamedly sentimental pick, but there's much to recommend in this scenario. The player's mission briefing is great. They have to infiltrate a starbase, steal an exploration ship, the St. Christopher, evade two scout ships in low orbit, and divert to a second secret base. 
pick up passengers and crew and proceed to a different planet, outrunning a uh, cruiser ship for their trouble. Do all that and they get to keep the ship. It all sounded incredibly exciting and was a big influence on making me want to play and referee traveller. Reading this for the first time reminds one of my most vivid memories involving RPGs. Since it involves stealing a spaceship, it also reminded me strongly of Blake 7, a popular UK science fiction TV show at the time. But instead of just watching Roy and Co. steal the Liberator from the Federation, this was a game in which my group and I could build our own story. Amber to Red strikes a good balance between the more serious, hard science fiction approach of Traveller, Infiltrate, Starbase, etc., and more pulpy space opera aspects, steal a spaceship, outrun the defence cordon. As such, I think it's a great way to introduce new players to the game. And more than that, it's a great scenario for beginning referees too. At least it was for me. And because of its relative simplicity, it's much easier to fit into an existing campaign. For the more ambitious referee, the introduction mentions running two teams of players, one playing the mission team and the other controlling the defending forces. Sounds complicated. Did anyone ever run the scenario this way, I wonder? Oh, and one more thing. Amber to Red has a map drawn by Ian McCaig. That's right, I said Ian McCaig. Just look at the hatching on the launch pad and the shielding walls. Wonderful. Starbase, we have a referee malfunction. The regular Traveller column Starbase covered many varied topics. New aliens, weapons, vehicles and starships, rules additions, background detail on everything from Starbase port facilities to alternative universes, even morality and ethics. Often, in only one page, it still managed to pack in plenty of ideas and inspiration we could take your Traveller games. One thing I was a bit guilty of when running Traveller was taking it all a bit too seriously. So I decided to pick the ideal antidote. We have a referee malfunction from issue 35 as my Starbase column. Bob McWilliams does his best Douglas Adams impression as he gives referees advice on how to get out of a tight spot. While clearly intended to be a light-hearted article, Bob McWilliams can't help himself and there's some very useful ideas here for harassed referees. The basic gist is to bowl the players a massive googly, throw a curveball for our American listeners, giving you as a referee some time to think while you try and figure out what the hell's going on. I was never tempted to try his real-time combat perception analysis system. I never had enough drinking straws. But I did pull the paranoia-introducing gambit of asking my players if they had any pot plants in their staterooms. I suspect there's a generation of UK traveller players out there who always mandate a selection of potted shrubbery for their starships, just in case. All thanks to Bob McWilliams. So, there you have it. A few of my traveller highlights from White Dwarf. Maybe more than any other game, I think Traveller really benefited from the depth invention and idiosyncrasy 
of the associated articles and scenarios in White Dwarf. Great memories. Section 3. Judge Blythe. Rules. I'm in the court of Judge Blythe, the rules lawyer. He's put on his helmet, his knee pads, his elbow pads, put a golden budgie on one shoulder and loaded up his lawgiver. For he is the law. Uh, for this section anyway. So we're going to get under the bonnet of the traveller rules. Um, but it's a challenge, isn't it, uh, Judge Blythe, to be a stickler in traveller? I think it is because it's a relatively rules light game when you're playing it. But I think it's a strange game because there's a lot of rules that come into operation before you play the game. Um, which we can talk about in a in a minute. So, but the actual playing of the game is relatively straightforward. Most of it is decided on rolling eight or more, modified by skills or abilities or that kind of thing, um, and that's really all there is to it. A little bit extra on combat, but there's not much more to it. Starship combat, of course, as well as personal combat. Um, so, so I'm going to ask you the question I ask you every time at this point, and that's, what are you three? favourite mechanics of Traveller? Okay, well, my first choice has to be character creation. Now, it, it's a little bit broader than just a specific mechanic um, because I don't think there's any one mechanic within character creation that, that's particularly interesting or unique. But it's, it's, the, it's the bit that makes it famous, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, and certainly when we started playing Traveller, it, it was a, a little bit of a shock in that you know, you can play a character that's had quite a lot of experience and quite a lot of uh, has quite a few skills, but you have to join one of usually one of the armed services, the navy or the army or the marines or maybe the scouts or even the merchant services, uh, and you have to make survival roles. And character creation works in kind of four-year terms of service, so you spend four years in a particular service and you acquire certain skills, and at the end of that four years, you have to make a survival role. So in theory, a character can die during character creation, which, yeah. as you say, is one of the most famous elements of Traveller, uh, one of its most notorious elements. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a series of tables, isn't it, in charts mm. that you have to roll through. And you, I remember, uh, we used to make a bit of an event of it, didn't we, rolling the character. I used to, uh, I used to try and push my luck, and uh, go for another term, or uh, you know, keep, 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 <laughs> yeah, keep yeah, going, yeah. Um, uh, in, in the aim of uh, getting more skills and becoming more decorated. I mean, I, I, you know, I desired a purple heart, um, and, you know, for for my uh, services to my unit. Yes, um, yes. But that, as you said, that was done before we even got round the table. Yes, it was. But what I like about it, uh, and again, this is one of those points that. Is, is only relevant viewed sort of historically, as in nowadays, of course, many role-playing games allow you to create experienced characters, characters who've got skills and have been around for a bit. Um, but back in those days, certainly when we played RuneQuest, there was a perception um, that you started with a beginning character, so you started with some, you know, some farm boy who had 15% with his broadsword, in D&D, you started with a first-level character and worked your way up. What was interesting about Traveller, and, and fair to say maybe kind of revolutionary, was the idea that you didn't have to have a beginning character. You could play someone who was into their 40s or 50s and had been around a bit and had acquired some skills. And that was quite an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, the 
dying during couch creation was a bit of a problem, but I know in later years, I think, and I think it was suggested in a white dwarf scenario, we used the rule that rather than die, you lost a point off a statistic. Yes. So you lost that, yeah. a point off strength, endurance, or dexterity. So there was still some risk because you could create a more experienced character, but but they would would lose points if they failed the survival roll, which uh, saved time. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I think it's one of the first. I mean, obviously we were used to RuneQuest, but it was certainly one of the first games that used skills as a mechanic. You know that you yeah. you collected yeah. skills, and they were all determined by this character creation process. Yeah. One of the things that people don't like about Traveller is this idea that once you've created your character, that's it. I think we've said before about this. There's no progression beyond that. Well, that's true, and I, I know later I will pick a I will be picking a, a rule I don't like. But yeah. in a sense, the lack of character development beyond that character creation process it wasn't really a rule I didn't like it was more of an absence of a rule wasn't it yeah. um, and that was a bit of a frustration in a way because there was that sense of whilst yes it was good to be able to create a character who had some experience so you weren't you weren't starting off with a first level magic user with two hit points who was going to die if he sneezed um, which can be frustrating in some games starting off as an absolute beginner um, Although it allowed you to do that and create an experienced character, once you'd created the character, there wasn't really any character progression. No. You know, you couldn't develop that character any further very easily. I think there were some rules about going on a four-year training yeah, yeah. pro, but it was, it was longer it was, than that. Actually, it was it was it was yeah. just a bit silly. It wasn't really meaningful within the context no. of playing the game. I think Mark Miller's argument was that um, people don't change. You know, what you find you find that when you get to a point in your life, you don't change much. Um, that, but, well, that's true to a point, isn't it? But to be fair, if you if you've been driving a car for a long time or or using a computer for a long time, you get you get better at it, don't you? So yeah. there is there is a logic that you you do get better with experience. If you if you're firing a gun, for example, in Traveller, you know, the more you fire the gun, the more experience you are going to get with it. It seems a little bit of a nonsense. I think he relented, as he said, um, by introducing this idea that after four or eight years of study, um, you could, uh, for a temporary period, increase your skill. <laughs> Just temporarily. Temporarily, yeah. <laughs> so this idea that you were a part of an adventuring party, I'm just off to tech. Yeah, um, I just, I'll, I'll just be just back to college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back in eight years. I'll be, I'll be able to work this out. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I think that is a, is a bit of a flaw. And it comes back to something that we've talked about before where it, there was this difficulty in terms of motivating characters in Traveller. Um, and I think to some extent the lack of character development beyond character creation plays into that because, again, it's difficult to give players rewards because often the reward in a role-playing game is getting yeah. better. You know, in D&D it's, it's becoming second level, third level. In RuneQuest it's getting better percentages and becoming an initiate or a rune lord. In Traveller, there were really no rewards in that sense. It's probably for some players more than others. Mm. So for myself, as you know, I'm not kind of motivated by uh, character progression in that way. I mean, I've never had a, a, a rune lord. I've never had a higher level uh, D&D character. Uh, for me, it's more about story and acting in character yeah, yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. I think that's probably why... I enjoyed Traveller more than some of the others around the table. 
I yeah. But I think that's true. And, you know, you can play a game of Traveller and you can play a campaign without character development and have a perfectly good time. But I think from a player's perspective, there is a, it is a little bit frustrating if you are constantly, you know, using, say you've got computer skill one in Traveller and you're constantly using computers and constantly failing the role because you've only got computer skill one. Um, but then at times making that role and feeling, well, wouldn't I get better at this? I'm yeah. always doing this. Yeah. I, wouldn't I just get better at it? And there is an element of satisfaction in that, I think, for most players. You know, whilst it's not the be-all and end-all, you know, no. yeah, you don't want to get down the power gaming role of I want to be a 20th level paladin or a you know, 35th level magic user. But, but just moving through the levels and getting better, there is some satisfaction in that. Yeah, maybe a lack of drive to level up characters explains a lot about my real life, but let's move on. Well, people don't change. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's true, both of us. As Mark Miller, it's, yeah, I apologise, you're right, we haven't changed. That's why we're still talking about role-playing games, let's face it. <laughs> let's, um, let, let's look at your second rule then, your second rule. Well, the second rule is uh, it's quite a simple one. What I like about Traveller is the fact that Almost everything in Traveller is decided uh, by two, two dice, two D6, um, roll an eight or more, modified by pluses or negatives, uh, by skills, attributes, penalties, that kind of thing. And it's quite a neat system because, it, it, again, a bit like RuneQuest, it doesn't rely on tables, it doesn't rely on too much messing about or too many calculations. It's nice and quite slick. It's quite a slick system. Yeah. Operated with really just two dice. I mean, I know we've talked before about we, we do like the funny shaped dice. We like them. It's just this little bit, a little bit of a glaring emission with Traveller. You could have thrown a few funny shaped dice in there. <laughs> it would have been more fun. But that said, it, it is a neat, simple system. Yeah. I think we've found that, haven't we? Because over recent uh, weeks, we've been playing Traveller online. Mm. And because the mechanic is simple, it kind of lent itself to that channel of playing, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are obviously there are more rules. You know, range, for example, in combat, range comes into it a little bit more because most of the combat's ranged combat with with guns, um, starship combat. There's more to it than just rolling two d6. But it's that it's that neat idea that deciding something is consistent. Yes, and, and again, you come back to RuneQuest. RuneQuest has a percentage system, so everything's a percentage. Traveller, everything is eight or more modified by you know skills, penalties, etc. You know, I mean, at the time we would play other games where the roles for deciding different things were different roles. You know, D and D does this; it has it has this role for that, that role for the other. Um, whilst a lot of it's a D twenty, that the numbers different for different things. Um, and it gets a little bit messy, but it's nice to have a kind of slick system where it's one thing that's virtually deciding everything. Yeah. So at the moment, Traveller's available in different flavours, so you can have the classic Traveller, and Mongoose have done a version of Traveller which uh, is sympathetic to the classic version. Um, it just kind of pars it down a bit. But they've also, uh, in recent months, put online uh, downloadable beta version of the mm. next uh, revision and they've tampered a little bit with the uh, this rolling over eight rule in two ways 
the first way is one that I know that you have strong feelings about. Uh, this is where they've actually <laughs> removed the mod uh, the modifier uh, from the eight. So, for example, if you have a a plus four modifier to roll over an eight, you actually have to roll over a four. Oh dear! Yeah, don't like that. I've never liked that. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> we we used to play with a group who did that, didn't we? Where you know you have to roll a ten or more, you know, and then oh, on a d twenty, but you've got a plus two, and they would say, "Oh well, it's, it's eight or more, isn't it?" No, it's not. It's not. It's ten or more plus two. There's a certain joy as a player in rolling the dice, knowing you've got to get a certain number, and then adding numbers on because that's your character adding bonuses. Reducing the number just seems no. Oh, I don't like that. I've never liked that. I don't. I don't know why. I'm just. I just think add the numbers. Yeah. Add the numbers to the dice because it gives a sense of your character has that ability to get those bonuses. It seems more satisfying as a player yeah. than just reducing it to a four or a six or a three or something like that. The other addition um, is one that it's kind of mechanic that's in vogue at the moment. Um, partly due to D and D fifth edition, and that's the idea of a boon or a bane. So if you have something that might assist your roll, you have a boon, so you can roll three dice instead of two, and disregard the lowest. If you've got something that's going to um, affect your performance in doing something, you have a bane, and that's where you've got to take the lowest dice, so you remove the highest. Mm. Um, so that's an element that I'm starting to introduce into mm. our online game. Yeah. Um, cause I think it just gives a few more options and uh, yeah. allows that um, idea of negotiation that's, uh, you know, that it, it kind of characterises modern gameplay, mm. doesn't it? I quite like that idea. Yeah, I do quite like that idea of the extra dice and... Yeah, it makes it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more exciting, you know. It's, it's a bit like the systems like RuneQuest 6, the edition does, where, you know, you spend a luck point and you can roll the dice again. There's yeah. something... And this idea of, uh, you know, some games use bennies, don't they, and these kind of things where you can have, have a chance to influence the, the result. But I think yeah. I think it's probably closer to this idea of advantage, disadvantage that is in uh, in, in, in uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th yeah. edition. yeah. I suppose it'll drag us grognardy uh, into the twenty first century, into the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, I quite, I quite like that as a rule. Yeah. Just, just don't, just always add the modifiers. Don't reduce yeah. the roll. <laughs> okay, and your third uh, mechanic. Well, my, my third mechanic is a little bit like character creation. It's not a, a specific mechanic, but it's a, a process, I suppose, within the game. Um, and it's a, it's something that's sort of forgotten about, really, with Traveller. Um, and there's reasons for that, which I'll go on to, uh, is the planet creation rules. Because uh, in the third book of the original rules, there are rules for creating planets, uh, gravity, atmosphere, population, law level, tech level, things like that. And it's a series of 2D6 rules, on, admittedly on tables, on some tables, modified by various factors that allows you, in, in a relatively short space of time, I mean, in, in five or ten minutes, to create a whole planet, you know, and give you an outline for that planet. Um, I do think it's quite a neat system, 
Um, and it's also there's a bit of science in there, so it's modified. So certain sort of atmospheric things, for example, are modified by the size of the planet and that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of science thrown in there as well. It's not just random dice rolls. Um, and I do think it, it's a very, very neat system. Um, it's a shame, really, that it's almost forgotten because, of course, when you bought, when I bought the deluxe edition, um, you've got the Spinwood Marches in there, which is, you know, several hundred star systems. So you don't really have to use it. You know, it becomes a little bit yeah. forgotten. Uh, and I think Traveller overtook it, you know, and uh, left it behind a little bit. So whilst you need to understand the planetary creation rules to to understand the statistics, if you like, of the planets, because the planets are like characters in a way. They have a, they have a character profile, just like a player character would. You have to understand it from that point of view, but you never have to really make the rolls on the table because you've got hundreds and hundreds of ready-made worlds. And as we played travel, that was more and more the case. You know, we had the Spinwood Marches, you had the Soleimani Rim, you had the, you know, the Vanguard Reaches and all these kind of... You never had to use it. But it's a shame, really, because it is... It, you think it's quite a neat system. I seem to remember that you did create some systems, though. I, I, I think like, I did at first, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Games Workshop produced a pad mm. of uh, yeah. paper. To, yes, that's to right. Little hexagrams that you could you could plan your own planets yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it's quite it's a neat system, but it's, but it's sort of forgotten about because yeah. you don't really need it because everything's you know once you get said so like you get the spin of marches and you get two hundred worlds, you really don't need. You know, you could play for years with that. So you never really need to roll on it. But when you look at it, it is quite a clever, it's a very clever, neat little system for, you know, yeah. look, we've got a role-playing game where people are hopping from planet to planet. Now what we need is some system whereby you can generate planets, you know. Yeah. So instead of just going, oh, it's an ice, an ice world, it's a desert world, it's a water world or whatever, you, you can roll dice um, and create worlds. And also what's interesting about that as well is when you do that, you get these peculiar sets of statistics that makes you as a games master think about the planet in a slightly different way because you look at things and you think, that seems a bit contradictory. You know, it's a high-tech level. It's got high population. The law level's really low. And you think, well, why would that be? And then, of course, your imagination kicks in and you try and explain why that's the case. You know, so it's a yeah. classic thing of... You know, the dice fall in a certain way and then you have to explain to yourself and to the players why it's like that. And that kind of fires your imagination a little bit. Yeah. You know, so it, it, is, mm. it is one of the kind of, you know, great bits of travel. But as I say, sadly, okay. never really used very much. Okay, so those are your favourite mechanics. Which is the mechanic you like the least? The mechanic I like the least in travel. And, and this is this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, is the rules about armor, body armor, um, where uh, the table in there modifies the to hit roll. So it's a bit like armor class in D and D. Whereas instead of armor absorbing damage, it modifies the to hit roll. So if you're wearing, I don't know, a fl if you're in a flak jacket, for example, and someone fires a gun at you, their chance to hit you, or in, inflict damage, hit you, it's kind of abstracted, um, is reduced by a certain amount. Um, but if they hit you, you take the full damage. Whereas my instinct is always, and this is the RuneQuest player speaking, 
my instinct is always that armour should absorb damage. Armour doesn't stop someone hitting you. It soaks up the damage. If you're wearing a flak jacket and I'm not, and somebody shoots you, the flak jacket soaks damage up. If they hit me, it doesn't soak any damage. It doesn't affect the chance to hit. Although I acknowledge that, a bit like armour class in D&D, it's an abstract concept, isn't it? So what they're saying is, they may have hit you, but none got through. But I quite like the idea that rolling to hit someone is one thing, and it might be modified by the range, it might be modified by how quick this person is. But if you hit them, that's when the armour kicks in. And RuneQuest did that, and we, our first role-playing game did that, RuneQuest. Uh, you're wearing metal, you're wearing yeah. chain mail, someone hits you with a broadsword, um, you take the same damage as someone who's not wearing armour, but your armour soaks that damage up. Seems a little realistic and logical. Traveller didn't do that. And it actually took me a little bit at the time to get my head around that because we hadn't really encountered that. And I didn't quite understand what it meant by, you know, if someone fired a shotgun at you and you were wearing mesh armour, it was plus three, I thought. Is that plus three to damage? Does the armour kind of injure you in some way if it's a shotgun? I don't know. It didn't make sense. Yeah. And then finally I got my head around it, but but even then it, was, it never feels satisfactory no. as, as a system, that element of it. Uh, and I know we, we bought as anti-high lightning, which had a different system in it, didn't it, where armour did soak up damage, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that, Blythe. Uh, you can get out of your garb now. Until next time, thank you very much. Goodbye. Section 4. There is no Section 4. I've rekindled my love of Traveller over the last few months thanks to preparing for this podcast. I know that Traveller has touched many RPG players. It's an essential part of the gaming heritage, so I'd love to hear your experiences of playing the game. What are your favourite supplements, and do you still play? In the second part of the podcast, we'll be looking at the different directions that Traveller has gone over the years, We'll also look at the setting in a bit more detail by selecting supplements from a specially constructed chart behind the referee screen. Look out for the micro grog pod for part two of the Traveller episode. Please contact me by e-mither dirkthedice at gmail or at the grognard file on Twitter or join in the conversation at thearmchairadventureblog.com I've had some really interesting correspondence about how RPGs have reached Germany and Brazil, so I'd be interested in learning about the life of RPGs in other parts of the world too. In the second part of the episode, the Pod, I do like to read out the letters and correspondence that I receive, either by iTunes or uh, the other methods, in the postbag section. And for every letter that I read out, I will send a Grognard RPG Files button badge. What anyone with a podcast will tell you is that knowing that there's an audience out there listening is what keeps it going. So please take the time to keep in touch, even if it's just a quick tweet. We're heading to Dragon Meat Convention in that fancy London, so look out for tweets and special reports here and there and everywhere. It's the first convention that we've been to for 30 years, so we've got a pass out from our fund prevention officers. We've got the tickets. We've got the train tickets. We've got the hotel. Anything could happen in those 48 hours. 
The next file that will be pulled from the Grognard file library will be Stormbringer, fantasy role playing in the world of Elric. Judge Blythe's attempt to smuggle a RuneQuest based system under the radar of the Prime Directive. We're huge Michael Moorcock fans, so we're looking forward to that one. Thanks for listening and taking part. Adios amigos.